The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you very much for reading that passage of scripture. Uh, Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you again. Uh, My name is Paul Lim. Uh, Since February uh, 2016, I've been here at Christ Press serving as the uh, scholar in residence, and sometimes that means I'll be speaking here as well as the, uh, our music road location. I literally just came down from upstairs, and I want to, I guess this particular moment, I feel uh, more like the need, greater need for praying for forgiveness of my own sins, of driving and parking and things like that. <laughs> I want to come clean. I parked at the, uh, the, the disabled spot today. Just, I couldn't find, I, I, the service got out a little late. I was driving, so I parked right there. So if you need to move my car, I'll come up and I'll give you my key. It's a gray Honda 2010 Accord. Lights are off, so, okay. All right, so let's pray. Lord, all of us, especially I, feel the acute need of your mercies to forgive and restore. Lord, how ironic it is to feel that all the more as you are ostensibly serving God, but such as it is, Lord, we want to come humbly before you under your loving authority of your word. May this story touch and transform us according to your wonderful plan. We love you for you have loved us first. Thank you for touching us deeply. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. So three days after Thanksgiving, and we are here gathered to worship God. Families and friends have been with you, are with you still, and will go in different ways soon as well. It could also be a time of difficulty and drama and just sadness as well. So I want to acknowledge that 
all of these multivalent feelings and realities are with us today. And as we look to this particular scripture, uh, Luke chapter 17, uh, I really do pray for all of us, especially for those who months of November and December may be particularly challenging, to find comfort and solace as we journey forward to the city of God. So as it has been just read for us now, today's scripture presents to us a very, very intriguing conundrum. Ten lepers are healed in this spectacular display of their, their faith and the Lord's omniscience, or at least like prescience, um, you know, his power to direct future contingent events to come together in this great healing event of all ten lepers. The conundrum then is this. Of the ten that are healed, only one came back to give thanks to Jesus. You heard that as we read the scripture. Thus the ine inevitable question raised for the nine would be, why weren't they grateful? Where were they? Or at least their gratitude could have been manifested in the concrete action of giving thanks to the source of this miracle, Jesus himself. It is season to be giving thanks, and I personally would like to give thanks to, to, to all who are here. Um, also want to give a particular shout out to middle school and high school students. Uh, I heard from some of your parents that what I have to say, I always feel like it's going over people's head all the time, but uh, it isn't always that way, so I am really grateful uh, for that. And also in this particular story, we find uh, several elements of surprise, as well as a kind of ironic putting together or juxtaposition that might escape the reader's or a crowd's view unless they were noticed by Jesus and thus recorded for us by Luke, the gospel writer. So I want to kind of go over a few things from this story that, that you may or may not have noticed, and then we'll share three points after that. Some are quite obvious, and others are not as obvious as, as um, some others. First, there were 10 lepers, obviously, of course. Okay, there you go. That's the first thing we noticed. And, but they were standing at a distance from Jesus. No surprises there either at one level, because they were quarantined. They were separated from the rest of their familial and communal context. Because in ancient Judaism, as is true in most cultures that have had uh, leprosy as part of their cultural uh, presence, uh, meant that they could not be living in proximity to their loved ones. They had to be separated. So they experienced alienation and estrangement that uh, befell them because of their condition. We'll come back to this theme in a few minutes of estrangement. But Leviticus chapter 13, which is perhaps your favorite book in the Bible, as is mine too, Leviticus chapter 13 gives a detailed instruction on what leprosy looked like and how it functioned socially and religiously and why the non-leprous community was thinking that they'd be better off without them. So it says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So think with me about a person, a group of persons who are leprous. You cannot come near your mom or dad or your sons or daughters or brother or sister. 
you had to keep at least a 50-meter distance between you and your loved ones. And when they come near you, your responsibility is to cry out, unclean, unclean, don't come near me because we need to keep the safe distance and create safe space for you and for me. Imagine that. Imagine that's your life journey. Imagine that that's what you have because that's exactly what these lepers were experiencing on the day, in the morning of when Jesus showed up as they met Jesus. Third thing that we notice here is that they initiated contact with Jesus. It wasn't that Jesus noticed them, but they noticed Jesus and they cried out, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. They were deeply aware of the fact that there's nothing of their own deserving. They only had this keen recognition or feeling of their absolute dependence on this Jesus about whom they had heard and whose miracles could possibly have some kind of trickle-down effect on them. They knew that they were undeserving of God's mercies, particularly because in, their, in that cultural context, if you have leprosy, then you're told that it is because God's curse is on you. Particularly the issue of uh, kind of a, um, a gossiping was one of the issues that as Miriam did. And so there was a lot of these kind of cultural cumulated wisdom that said, okay, if you have leprosy, that's a clear sign that God's not happy with you. What Jesus says in response to their request, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, is at least to me the first element of surprise. You know what he says, right? He says, go show yourselves to the priests. Now, come on now. They're saying, you know what, please help us, have mercy on us. And Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. You know why he said that? And why that is kind of, in a way, somewhat cruel? Because if you're a leper, when you are healed of your leprosy, that's when you go and show yourself to the priest. Now, notice this kind of irony here, right? Because they had cried out, and rightfully so, have mercy on us. And Jesus' response is, a bit of a nonsense, non-sequitur. It doesn't follow because have mercy on me and he says, go show yourself to the priests. It is all, and then notice what else. It says that Jesus threw down his gauntlet and says, this is a challenge for your faith. And what do they do? They pick it up. They say, okay, we're going to actually take your challenge, take the challenge. And they started walking toward the priests. And you know what happened, right? The rest is history, as it were. As they were walking, it says, they were healed. Can you believe that? Brooke is saying no. I have a hard time. I mean, like, is it really? I mean, let's say I have a condition that I know. Like, I've got a problem. Let's say I've got a huge, I don't know, something on my face, and it's a skin problem. And I go to Pastor Philston and say, you know, I got this problem. And he says, you know what, why don't you just go to the doctor, and on your way over there, you might be healed. I mean, would you believe that? Would you say, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, actually. As I'm driving to the dock, I'm going to be healed of my problem. That's, in fact, what had happened to them. I don't know about you. This sounds completely crazy, and at the same time, I am really wrestling to believe it. I believe it, but then the real lesson is not just whether you believe it or not, actually. There's much deeper than that. So let's have a look. So Jesus throws down the challenge, go show, go your, go show yourselves to the priests. 
And as you're walking, they were healed. And it says they went. It shows their obedience, all ten of them. All ten of them, they went, and Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest, and they go, and then notice what else. There is, that leads to the second element of surprise. And as they went, they were cleansed, right? So it, it seems that they probably didn't even get to the priest. I don't know. I don't know about you. If I'm going to, if I have leprosy and I've been quarantined from my family, let's say for five years, I couldn't see my family. I mean, they could come within 50 yards, but no, no closer. And I was living with other lepers, and we're feeling like losers of history. We're feeling forgotten, forsaken. People didn't give a dang about us. And we were living outside the city camp as a visible reminder for us and for them that there are consequences of our sin. And you're living it. And one day Jesus shows up, and he says, go show yourselves to the priest. And as we're walking, we're healed of our leprosy. What are you likely to do? Let's look at these two diametrically opposite responses that people had. Of the nine, of the ten, nine people did one thing, one person does another, right? And that's the third element of surprise, at least to me. Only one out of ten came back to say thank you to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I was kind of, what? I'm a teacher, and you know, okay, if I get one out of ten students come and say thank you, I feel like, all right, that's, that's expected. But Jesus? the perfect Lord of all, I would have thought that nine people came back to say thank you to Jesus. One out of ten comes back. How could that be? Are you ready for the fourth element of surprise? And that is that this healed former leper was a Samaritan. What do you make of that? I want to tell you right now that we make so little of it. We sanitize this story so well that that he was a Samaritan doesn't shock us or scandalize us at all. Like, okay, he's like the good Samaritan. And we kind of, be, that he becomes like, just as Santa Claus is part of our Christian tradition, the good Samaritan is part of the Christian story, that, it, that, that whole story doesn't really kind of surprise us or shock us at all. Fifth element of surprise is that Jesus seems a bit surprised, if not slightly disappointed. He asks, were not all ten cleansed? And where are the other nine? You notice the pathos of Jesus is asking here? He says, wait a minute, I healed all ten of them. Only one came back. What happened to the other nine? And further, what did Jesus mean by this? When he tells a Samaritan, he says, you know what? Ten were cleansed, nine didn't come, you came. Has no one returned to give thanks to God except for this foreigner? And we'll unpack what that means. And then let's notice what Jesus says in verse 19. Rise and go, your faith has made you well. Wait, what? What happened to the other nine? I was thinking, did leprosy come back to them? Probably not. Quite likely not, because we're trivializing the mercies of God. God lets the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. God's not going to be some kind of parsimonious or stingy deity that says, oh, I give you something, I'm going to take it back. No, all ten who are healed of leprosy remained as cleansed. Except for the fact that one got something not only external, but also internal. Your faith has, has made you well, that there is a connection between grace and graciousness. 
that God's grace does beget graciousness, and we'll unpack that in just a little bit. So for the rest of our time, I would like to share three points regarding the lepers who didn't say thanks. We notice three, actually, ironies here. Three ironies, something that don't really add up so well. The first is the irony of entitlement. First is the irony of entitlement. Second is the irony of estrangement. Third is the irony of the gospel. So then, entitlement, estrangement, and I guess in the Greek is evangelion, so it's alliteration, but oh, well, it's the gospel. So entitlement, estrangement, and the gospel. So let's look at the first point, the irony of entitlement. If you're like me, you probably wondered a good deal about who these nine lepers might have been. I spent hours upon hours trying to figure out who they were. And I'm not kidding. And I don't have a satisfactory answer. Who are they? So they were lepers, but do we know anything about their identity? It doesn't say. It does say, however, about the tenth one, right? He was a leper, it was a he, and he was a Samaritan. So we know his gender identity, ethnic identity, and his health condition then and now, right? But the other nine, we know that they, we know about their health condition. We know about the, their gender, I think. They're mostly male. We don't know for sure about their, I mean, we, we cannot assume conclusively about anything. So spent hours and hours looking at the internet, looking at commentaries, looking at dictionaries. I'll tell you what I found, all right, ready? So I was looking at this thing called the Jewish Annotated New Testament, which is a great source uh, compiled by a group of Jewish New Testament scholars, biblical scholars, looking at the times of Jesus and the Christian scriptures called the New Testament. This Jewish Annotated New Testament said that they, these nine were, quote, presumably Jews, unquote. So quite likely have been Jews. And the, the reason is, and it goes on to say, that because they were, Jesus is traveling between where? Samaria and Galilee. So he's going in between Samaria and Galilee, uh, uh, the pathway that most people will actually avoid, right? And furthermore, if that was the region and there was a Samaritan representative, then it is quite likely that the, the lepers there in that area were not going to be Romans or Scythians or barbarians. They were more than likely to have been Jews. And if that was the case, then the Jewish lepers, if they were healed of their leprosy, when their leprosy left them, a skin condition. So scholars are divided about what kind of leprosy it is. It is modern-day leprosy or is some kind of more generic skin problems and so on and so forth. Um, it seems one thing is clear that if you're a Jewish leper and if your leprosy left you, then what you do is you go and show it to your priests in Jerusalem. But if you were Samaritan, then what you have to do is that you would have to go to Mount Gerizim where your worshiping place was and to show yourself to have been cleansed of this curse of God. Since these ten were calling out together for Jesus' attention, one could assume that they might have been together, like living together, huddled up together. Although we can't be conclusive here, when they were in their state of being leprous and marginalized and rejected by majority community, they found themselves, Jew and Samaritan alike, huddled up together in one purpose, as misery loves company. They were both, in the eyes of the majority, non-lepers community, cursed by God, 
losers to be quarantined and rejected and distanced, and you get the picture. They knew that as lepers, they were cursed by God and could not be part of the worshiping community. Imagine the sense of alienation. You want to come worship, but you can't because they're worried about contamination. Then why, oh why, did you not return to say thanks, these nine lepers, is the question. So the irony of entitlement is the first point, as well as my burden of proof. I need to show you and me that that actually is there, the irony of entitlement. So think with me. Luke was a medical doctor and likely a Gentile convert to Christianity. He wasn't born a Jew, and he wasn't a Jewish ethnically or religiously, and he becomes converted to Christianity. And so when he wrote his gospel, the Gospel of Luke, as well as his other book, the book of Acts, he wanted to show that Jesus came for the underdogs, culturally, religiously, and economically as well. Luke has a lot to say about poverty. Luke has a lot to say about women and Jesus' inclusion of women for his work. And Luke has a lot to say about the Gentile inclusion in the community of God, particularly the Gentiles and more particularly the Samaritans. And I'm getting ahead of myself right there. So that everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, Roman or barbarian, could find their hope in Jesus. Notice the language of Jesus in that question. Where are the other nine? I read this as, a, an, uh, as containing an element of expectation, surprise, even disappointment. He was expecting and hoping that the other nine will also be there giving thanks and multiplying this joy together. All ten of you are healed, but it's just you. What happened? Why didn't they, the other nine, turn up? And, and what's going on here? I think the key word, at least envisioned by Luke, the gospel writer, was Samaritan. Samaritan as opposed to Jewish. Leper as opposed to non-leper. While you're rejected by society, you can acknowledge the temporary alliance between the Jews and Samaritans because they really, did you know that? They really did not like each other at all. There was a sort of a two-class system. The Jews felt superior to the, the Samaritans. They felt that we are the pure bread, pure blood, pure religion. Yours is a bastardized, corrupt, and mixed-up version, messed-up version of it all. But when, they, when these ten were all lepers together, for, for a little bit, you could set aside your ethnic sense of superiority or difference, and you were kind of huddled up together. But then, when you were healed, and think about this, why didn't they come back? I often wonder, why, what do you think? Why didn't they come back to say thank you to Jesus? I think that perhaps the most benign interpretation, explanation is this. I don't know about you, but if I had leprosy for the last few years, and I didn't really expect this to happen, but one day I meet this teacher named Jesus, and all we did was have mercy on us, and he says, go show yourselves to the priest, and we think it's kind of crazy and kooky, but we're going to try it anyway, because why not? And we're healed. I mean, completely unexpected outcome, yes? Then what am I likely to do? Would I return to Jesus? Probably not, and here's why. Not because I'm not, ungra I'm not, not because I'm ungrateful, not because I'm not thankful, but I'm so excited to see my son. I'm so excited to see my wife. I'm so excited to see my friends. I want to have a meal together. I want to celebrate. And oh, in the moment of celebration or in that sustained moments of celebration, I forget to come back and say thank you. I think that's all. Don't you think? Are we exonerating these nine so easily? Are, are they getting off the hook so easily? 
Not necessarily. But here's what I think is going on more deeply. Let's assume, that, can we say that that's probably what happened? Right? They weren't like intending to say, you know, forget you, Jesus. They weren't trying to do that at all. They recognized Jesus as a master. They didn't realize that he could heal them like that. And they were really thankful in their hearts, but it didn't show in their actions, but thankfulness was somewhere in their hearts, I think. But here's what also is going on. That these nine are just like me, and perhaps like you. We forget the giver for the wondrous gifts that we get. So perhaps these nine deep down, might have had some sense of entitlement. I don't want to press this point too far, but I think there's something there. It's like this. You know, Shakespeare may be right, right? He says something like this, to err, to make errors is human, and to forgive divine. As we come into the presence of God, do we not somehow feel like and believe that it's God's job to forgive? And my job to make mistakes, and we're all good, because there's a part of the liturgy called confession of sin, and there will be the pardon issued, and we're all good again. Are you with me? It seems that, and and I'm including myself, myself first, I think there's a sense of entitlement. that as we come into this picture, as we think about Jesus, we know the outcome. Jesus' job is to love and die and forgive and restore, and my job is to make a mess of my life. That's that's all it is. Because Jesus' job, remember, is to die for me. And my job, remember, is create mess so that he can clean it up. Jesus needs a job. He needs to have the perpetual role of intercessor and I need to produce sin for Jesus to be there. The irony of entitlement. I think there may be something like this. Maybe the writer doesn't really press this hard, But maybe the fact that there were nine who were Jews who felt that in the economy of Judaism and this Jesus as part of a Jewish rabbinical kind of culture that God forgave, God restored, and they felt like, yeah, I'm a Jew, and and, and I kind of deserve it. Whereas the Samaritan, Samaritan receives something wonderful from this Jewish rabbi. He's not expecting it. And maybe that's how we can explain this irony here is entitlement as opposed to estrangement. That leads me to my second point, the irony of estrangement. Why did just one person who also happens to be a Samaritan come back to give thanks? Let's start it this way. Let me ask you, especially middle school and high school students, let's name two most famous parables of Jesus. Two most famous parables of Jesus. Let's start, and they're all parable of and two words. Parable of the... Somebody said the prodigal son. That's right. The parable of the prodigal son is one, but there is another one. The parable of the good something. Good Samaritan. The parable of the good Samaritan, and that's what I was looking for here. Parable of the good Samaritan. See, everyone knows a good Samaritan, right? That's one of the most famous stories of Jesus. So again, we sanitize that story. We think we know what it means, but we may not actually. See, we need to understand that this, this first century connotation of Samaritan is a group of people that you wanted nothing to do with. Think of in your life, think of in our lives, a group of people that you deep down somehow 
despise, want to distance yourself from, in fact, want to quarantine them, want to keep them at arm's length, right? And I don't need to specify, I don't want to specify, I leave that up to the Holy Spirit to work in your soul. But think of them, because the parable of the Good Samaritan, Good Samaritan would be an oxymoron, right? Those two words don't go together. No good person could be Samaritan. Samaritans are never good. And Jesus tells a parable to show something in the Gospel of Luke. See, that story of the Good, good, good Samaritan shows up in the Gospel of Luke. Remember? Luke is really about the universality of the love of God. That it's not just the Jews who get in on the goodies of Jesus. It's also Gentiles. It's not those only in the Mediterranean basin. No, they're going to be in Spain. They're going to be in, in India. They're going to be in South America and Africa. The gospel is going to the uttermost parts of the world. And the, the gospel writer Luke is so excited to show that. So the parable of the Good Samaritan is right there. Furthermore, there's a Roman centurion that shows up in, in Luke chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 9, Luke writes that Jesus says about this Roman centurion who had a servant who was sick, and he says, can you come and help us? And Jesus says, okay, but then he says, you don't need to come over to my house. Just say the word and it'll be all good. And Jesus is astonished and he says, you know what? I haven't even found faith like this even in Israel. So to this Roman centurion, now he's part of this God's family. In chapter 10, we hear that famous story the parable of all parables, the Good Samaritan story, to illustrate an element of surprise that the group of people who felt estranged from the people of God, namely the people of Israel, they come to realize in this story that they are not beyond the scope of redemption at all. So here is the irony of estrangement. The Samaritans who felt that they were so far from the story of God's salvation were actually in some ways much closer According to Luke's theologic, what he's presenting is that those who you might regard as they're not really part of God's kingdom may actually be really closer to the kingdom of God. So often Jesus surprises listeners with stories like that. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. I never include myself as part of the first who will be last. Right? You know what I mean? I always exclude myself from that kind of the, you know, the joke. I don't want to be the butt of the joke. Jesus says, you think you're first, you'll be last. And I said, oh, that ain't me. The last shall be first. Oh, that's me. <laughs> and maybe here in Nashville, Tennessee, whatever it is called, the buckle of the Bible belt or whatever it is, we need to actually ask ourselves that question. Are we first or last? Are we Jews or Samaritans? We need to wrestle with that. Here, Luke says, you know what? And this guy comes and threw, throws himself at Jesus' feet and thanks him, and he was a Samaritan. The, the construction in that Greek is very emphatic. Luke wants you to know, okay, you don't need to know his height or weight or anything, hair color, eye color, no, but you need to know his ethnicity. He was Samaritan. I want you to know that. That's what he says right there. No mistaking it. For Luke, this person's ethnicity was crucial as the parable of the Good Samaritans was also really the punchline was that this Samaritan is good. This Samaritan whom you might think is outside the economy of God's salvation is very much in it. And thus the first shall be last and the last shall be first. This is the one who had experienced estrangement from, from the community of God. See, 
Jesus also in this story expresses surprise in that second point of his, uh, the irony of estrangement. Nobody came back except for this allogenes. That's the Greek word for this as is translated as foreigner. Literally, it means other person, the other. Think of somebody that you would, or some group of people that you would regard as the other, the ultimate other. We have nothing to do with them, right? Think of them. Um, I remember telling this story because somebody mentioned this to me uh, not too long ago. Um, Dr. Seuss is someone that I didn't actually grow up reading a lot, but I find Dr. Seuss's story to be a really, really powerful illustration of kind of the moral parables. Do you know the story of star-bellied snitches? How many of you have heard that story? All right, okay, thank you. Yeah, star-bellied snitches. That becomes having a star on your belly becomes a sign of privilege, sign of power, and sign of discrimination. And then what happens is that the others who don't have the star on their you know, bellies, they want to go get it. And so Sylvester McMonkey comes into town. He says, okay, you go into this machine and out comes, you will have a belly with full of, you know, you have a star on your belly. That becomes a sign of power and privilege and acceptance. And then it really kind of mucky-muck and everyone's kind of, and at the end, they realize that this is only a sign. It doesn't really mean anything. And so it really is that sort of irony that, that's there. That irony is that you think you're in, you're not. In God's economy, that this same sense of estrangement that the Samaritan experiences is something that he will soon experience later on as a role reversal. This great American philosopher from the last century, W.E.B. Du Bois, mentioned this phrase, double consciousness. And this Samaritan has that double consciousness. This individual knew that he was a leper. This individual also knew that he was a Samaritan. He was doubly estranged from the economy of God's acceptance. The irony here is that the only one who came back to say thank you was the one who was doubly conscious of his estrangement, ethnic estrangement and health condition estrangement. One of my favorite movies of all time, or I guess I should I always say of all time, but in the last five years, I guess, is this movie called Slumdog Millionaire. Some of you might have seen it. This is out in 2008 and won a few Academy Awards and so on and so forth. Slumdog Millionaire is set in, um, you know, in, in Mumbai, India. It's a story of a, a contestant in the Indian version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. I want to recommend it to you, especially if you're over 16 years old. It's rated R, but there's a lot of wonderful, wonderful stuff there. Jamal Malik, an 18-year-old guy from the Jehu slums of Mumbai, becomes an unlikely contestant in this show. And he went, he didn't go to all the good schools. He, in fact, went through the school of hard knocks. He didn't, and he was a kind of, you know, street urchin and kind of grew up homeless. And then he and his brother were really close. And there was a girl that he really loved. Her name is Latika. And then, so both Latika and, and, and Jamal experienced estrangement from their community, economically and caste-wise as well. But he somehow becomes a contestant in this show, and he answers all of these questions, and, and, and really that becomes the reason why people become suspicious of this guy. You must have some kind of scheme going on because you couldn't possibly know all of these answers. But then, you know, whenever he's having a hard time, so one of the subplot lines is that, and Jamal is always thinking about Latika, the childhood uh, stories and, and experiences they had together, though growing up in the slums of Mumbai, though growing up with nothing and parentless and as orphans, they share those moments and they were able to, in their midst of estrangement, they're able to kind of come up with moments of gratitude and being thankful. 
Whenever Jamal felt depressed or completely hopeless, he thinks of Latika always. That leads me to my final point, the irony of the gospel. So the irony of entitlement, the irony of estrangement, and the irony of the gospel. So we read earlier from uh, Leviticus chapter 13. Their lepers were often sent to places outside the city gate. They had to be quarantined. They had to be separated. And they were often taken to places outside the city gate. A place of abandonment. A place of no security, no joy. Guess what? In Hebrews chapter 13, we find a beautiful irony of the gospel. In chapter 13 of Hebrews, in verse 12, it says, And so also Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. That is the indicative part, that Jesus suffered outside the city gate. Think about that. So there were ancient cities that had gates, right? Medieval cities with gates. Early modern or modern cities with gates. Or gated communities. So what do you have inside a gated community or city? You got security. You got safety. You got friends. You got good stuff. You got life that is really pleasurable, meaningful, joyful. What about outside a city gate? What do you have? Stranger danger, right? You got lack of security, you got, you know, people who may take your safe space away and your sense of security and well-being away. Outside the city gate is not a good place. Parents, you know that. You probably wouldn't encourage your kids to say, yeah, go outside the city gate and go, don't ever come back. Hang out over there. But notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 13. Jesus suffered outside the city gate. He became an executed criminal. We have a cross over there, right, and over there. Look at the crosses. Doesn't that look strange to you? It looks really weird to me. You know why? If we were to have Roman citizens to come, back to, our, come to our sanctuary today, right now, so they were living in 40 A.D., they were able to transport themselves in a time machine and come to 2018, November, here in Nashville, Tennessee, they look at those things, they would think they were barking mad. They don't think we're crazy. They will say, what are you doing? That's a grotesque symbol of execution. That's a symbol of shame. That is a Roman symbol of power that says, don't mess with us because if you mess with our law, we're going to kill you. Imagine going 2,000 years from now. We come to some sanctuary. We find, I don't know, electric chair? hang in the middle of sanctuaries, you and I will look at that and say, that is really, really grotesque. That is gross. That is a symbol of violence that has nothing to do with beauty and truth and goodness of God in Jesus Christ. And yet, notice this, my friends, the irony of the gospel is that we have sanitized the gospel message. We have sanitized the gospel message so that it becomes part of our culture and part of our story. To be Southern means to be Christian. No? I moved here 12 years ago, and our realtor and people, were, we were trying to buy our house, and they will ask us questions like, where do you go to church? And I often wonder, what if I'm not a Christian? Do I have to make up a church's name to feel like I belong in this community? Where do you go to church is one of the questions that I ask. That is kind of strange. See, I think in the South, 
I don't know what is big in the South. I, you know what? When I was living in Boston or Philadelphia or New York or New Haven, I never really used to watch college football a lot. <laughs> because we could watch professional football. I don't know, but college football wasn't that big. I know, sorry, that, that's, that's not good. But you get what I'm saying. College football is so much bigger in the South. I think maybe the SEC has something to do with it, maybe. I don't know. I became enculturated now. I expect to be watching college football. It's not at all strange for me. I never used to watch. I mean, I'm a Penn State fan. I'm a Yale fan, whatever. They don't do that well. So, you know, it's not Alabama or something. So I never used to watch college football. Now I want to watch how Vanderbilt is doing and this, that, and other. I watch college football. It's part of the culture. Football, Jesus, and whatever, you know. <laughs> they kind of go together. Touchdown Jesus, right? But you see, this is what I'm saying. I think here in the South, and I'm part of it now. I mean, I can't get out of here. I, 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 my wife loves Nashville. I think I'm stuck here for the next few, few years. I love this place. And I say this out of love. I think for many of us, we have made a gospel message not so scandalous. It's not a mad story. Do you remember, friends, when Jesus was ministering? What did his friends and family members call him? That he was mad. So then the question about the irony of the gospel is this. Why is Christianity declining in the West? Why is Euro-American context no longer the key epicenter of Christianity? This person from whose book I'm about to read is not likely the person who would, certainly not like C.S. Lewis or Tim Keller, but he's a, a, a French philosopher from the last century named Michel Foucault. And his book called Madness and Civilization, I was teaching this a couple of weeks ago, and it really hit me like a ton of brick. Like what he had to say had so much to say about the issue that I'm talking about during today's sermon, about leprosy, about madness. Did you know, I mean, we, madness, I mean, leprosy is something that is kind of conjured up in our life, right? We don't run into lepers. Leprosy is not something that you think about every day then what would be, if we were to write this story in the 21st century version, who would be the lepers that would be part of this quarantine community? The poor? The mad? I don't know. So Foucault says, you know what? Something happened in the West. In Christianity in the West, something happened, and that is because the great theme of the madness of the cross which belongs so intimately to the Christian experience of Renaissance, began to disappear in the 17th century despite Jansenism and Pascal. Or rather, it continued but changed and somehow inverted its meaning. It's something like this. Jesus was called mad. When the Apostle Paul writes about, you know, the cross, what does he say? It's a foolishness to some people and it's a stumbling block for other people. That in the first century, as Christianity is gaining kind of greater credence and, and, and you know, more converts, it was seen as a mad religion. Why would you ever worship somebody on a cross? That made no sense at all. But somehow, after Constantine's conversion to Christianity, and after all the pillars of social fabric became Christian, then the madness of Jesus no longer was mad because he was the norm. Christianity is the norm. I became a Christian as a junior in college, and almost all my friends thought that I was crazy. Why would you ever want to become a Christian? You're smart. 
Why would you ever want to be a Christian? That's for losers. And I said, yeah, but I am a Christian. I don't know what happened. Maybe I am crazy. So I think for quite a while, and part of the reason why I'm, you know, teaching at a place like Vanderbilt is because I want to tell Christian students, you're not crazy, but there's some craziness about, there are some crazy elements about Christianity that you dare never forget. Put it like this. Jesus was an executed criminal in the eyes of the Roman Empire. So parents, I want to ask you a question. Would you encourage your children to be, okay, I want you to become like the most recently executed person in the state of Tennessee or Alabama or Mississippi? Would you encourage your children to emulate their lifestyle and who they were and what they stood for? The answer is absolutely not. Right? And yet, the craziness of Christianity, early Christianity, was exactly that. You know what? Romans really thought that Christians were crazy. They thought that Christians were cannibals, that they were incestuous, because why were they cannibals? Because what are we about to do? We're about to eat and drink the body and the blood of Jesus. Doesn't that sound cannibalistic? And why are we called incestuous? Because we call each other brothers and sisters. See, friends, starting with me, we forget the scandalous nature of the cross. So perhaps we need to rediscover the madness of the cross. Jesus who touched lepers and hung out with the social outcasts. As Richard Burroughs in his, in his fantastic book, Imitating Jesus, mentions that for the gospel writer Luke, he always portrayed Jesus as one who was preferentially drawn to the poor, the blind, the lame, the crippled, the leprous, those possessed or oppressed by evil spirits, and of course, women. In fact, the gospel writer Luke, of all the gospel writers, talks more about women's ministry with and for Jesus than any others. And so here it is. The irony of the gospel is that it calls us to follow a madman who touched lepers and became contaminated himself. Matthew says, you know what? He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Think of Jesus touching the leper's hand in Matthew's version. It is almost as if your illness, your disease, your sickness becomes mine. It is that unprecedented, scandalous transfer do you understand the gospel? Sometimes I don't think I do. I mean, how is it that some Jewish guy who lived 2,000 years ago, he died as a criminal, and his death will have an effect of forgiving my sins, past, present, and future, whereas Pastor David often says, sins that I haven't even concocted yet, they were dealt with on the cross? I don't know about you, David. I can't believe that. That sounds insane. That sounds mad. That makes no sense. Exactly. The gospel in, in its core doesn't make sense. Human reason cannot figure it out and say, yeah, that's the story I would have written. Chesterton says, truth is, reality is stranger than fiction. God's reality is stranger than all the fictions put together. So let me end with the lyrics from a great song, a great theologian that I admire a lot, and I think he lives in town, Michael Card, song called God's Own Fool. So come lose your life for a carpenter's son, for a madman who died for a dream, and you will have the faith his first followers had, and you will feel the weight of the beam. 
So surrender the hunger to say you must know. Have the courage to say I believe. For the power of paradox opens your eyes and blinds those who say they can see. Let's come to the one who will open our eyes and feed us unto life eternal. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have reminded us of the irony of our sense of entitlement, pretending as if it is your job to forgive and ours to mess about in our life. Lord, we are aware of the fact that there are some in our families and in our friend groups who feel that they cannot approach this community, worshiping community, because they feel like lepers. They feel like Jesus would have nothing to do with them. Oh, Lord, may they know that you, with you there is redemption, with you there is that embrace, with you there is that forgiveness and a new beginning. Lord, in our age of identity this and identity that, and all of these identities do matter deeply to us, but Lord, help us to realize again and again that the identity of all identities is that we belong to you, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.